0: Our intention for the End of the Word podcast is to read through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in 20-minute segments. That's the basic recipe here. However, every once in a while, we run across an issue that warrants a deeper look. And so rather than bloating one or two or three episodes in a series each time the issue turns up, it often makes sense to deal with the issue as an excursus once we've made our way through the series as a whole. In this episode, I want to dive a little deeper into the concept of Antichrist as we encounter it in John's epistles. Interestingly, and I would imagine surprisingly for many listeners, John is the only New Testament author to use that term, Antichrist, or any derivative thereof. Now, that isn't to say that he's the only New Testament author discussing this phenomenon. He's not. But he is the only one to discuss this phenomenon under those terms, John refers to Antichrists, plural, Antichrist, singular, and the spirit of Antichrist. And that too, I think, would come as a bit of a surprise to many listeners. In evangelical circles, we tend to talk exclusively about the Antichrist, singular, but John takes a much wider view. There are four references to Antichrist in John's epistles, so we'll work our way through each of them and then see if we can attempt a bit of a summary of what we've seen at the end. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at First John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Close quote. Now, before we go on to the next reference, we probably need to take a minute in order to understand what John means when he says that this is the last hour. Because apparently the fact that it is the last hour explains to John's mind why it is that we need to be prepared to deal with this character called the Antichrist. In the same way that John is the only New Testament author to use the phrase the Antichrist, he is also the only New Testament author to use the phrase the last hour. But most scholars assume that he means roughly what Peter and Paul mean when they speak about the last days. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The Apostle Peter says something similar in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. All right, so what do the apostles mean when they talk about the last days? Or as John even more urgently puts it, the last hour. What exactly are we talking about here? Well, that is actually one of the most complex questions in all of New Testament theology. On the one hand, Jesus seemed to tell his disciples to be ready for his return at any moment. He talked about how he would come like a thief in the night. He talked about how important it was for his disciples to stay awake, lest they be caught unawares. But on the other hand, he also told several parables about the possibility of a long delay, and the likelihood that the kingdom would spread slowly but surely throughout the whole world. So how does that all go together? John Henry Newman, writing in the last century, said it better than anyone else that I have seen or read. He puts it this way, though time intervene between Christ's first and second coming, it is not recognized, as I may say, in the gospel scheme, but is, as it were, an accident. For so it was that up to Christ's coming in the flesh, the course of things ran straight towards that end, nearing it by every step. But now, under the gospel, that course has, if I may so speak, altered its direction as regards his second coming, and runs not toward the end, but along it, and on the brink of it, and is at all times near that great event, which did it run towards it, it would at once run into. Christ, then, is ever at our doors, closed quote. Do you see that? In essence, the apostles seem to be saying that Christ, having finished all his work with respect to our redemption, could now return climactically as judge and king at any moment. There is nothing left in the timeline save for his climactic return. So history, Newman says, now does not run toward a climactic event as it did in the past, but now runs along a climactic event, ready to turn and encounter it at any second. So in that sense, we are right now in the last days. More than that, John says, we are in the last hour. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says simply, in the Christian era, it is always five minutes to midnight closed quote. So John is saying here in 1 John 2.18 that since it is the last hour, it's five minutes to midnight. It's, It's the last hour. Since the devil's time is short, we ought to expect fierce, wicked, desperate, demonic opposition all along the path that leads to eternal life. And we are experiencing that, John says. That's how we know that it is the last hour. The second mention of Antichrist comes just a few verses later. Look now at 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So the Antichrist may be identified with anyone who denies or departs from the apostolic teaching of Christ. Remember, John has a wider understanding of Antichrist than we tend to have today. He said just a few verses earlier, many Antichrists have come. And then he went on to identify them as the people who had formally separated from these local churches under John's authority. As Colin Cruz says here, that comes as a bit of a surprise. He says, surprisingly, these Antichrists are identified as people who were once members of the author's own Christian community— but have seceded from it, closed quote. And I think he's right. That, that likely does come as a bit of a surprise. Most modern-day evangelicals tend to think exclusively about the Antichrist. They are looking for the personification of the spirit of Antichrist that uses the power of the state to oppress believers. But that guy comes around only once in a while. But John seems to be saying that Antichrists are always among us people who went out from us, people who were nominal Christians, who are now active in their opposition to the apostolic teaching of Christ. So this is a bigger and wider issue than many of us tend to appreciate, and that's a helpful corrective. The third mention of the Antichrist comes in chapter 4. In 1 John 4, 2-3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So again, we see that in John's understanding, the Antichrist is here and coming. And his main interest is in deceiving people away from the apostolic gospel. The final mention of the Antichrist comes in 2 John verse 7. There the apostle says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Well, as I mentioned, those are all of the references to the Antichrist in John's epistles, in the entire New Testament, actually. So let's zoom out now, as it were, and attempt a bit of a summary of what we've seen. First thing I think we can say with confidence, based on the four passages that we've read, is that the spirit of Antichrist has come and is coming into the world. John said that in 1 John 2.18, but he also said there, As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So John did not understand himself as being the originator of this teaching. He understood himself as merely reinforcing something they'd already heard, well, many scholars assumed that what they had already heard was some version of what we have recorded for us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12, which was, of course, written long before 1 John. In that epistle, the Apostle Paul said, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, Close So that teaching was out there. It was a common topic in Christian conversation in the first century. The early Christians knew that Jesus was coming back, and they knew that he could come back at any moment. All the work had been done. The great climax had already happened. Remember, they were readers of the Old Testament. When they talked about prophecy, they were talking about Old Testament prophecy, all of which landed fully and finally upon the person and work of Christ. So they were ready. They remembered Jesus saying, it is is finished. He didn't say on the cross, we've made tremendous progress. He said, it is finished. So they anticipated his coming at any moment, but they knew too that God was patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter had said that again, long before 1 John was written. So John's people knew that the mystery of lawlessness, this spirit of Antichrist was already at work in the world. They knew that and John knew that they knew that. And they also knew that just prior to the second coming of Christ, a sort of trigger event would occur. A sort of chain would be lengthened, giving increased permission and operating space to a principal and a person described by Paul as the man of lawlessness. But for now, he was being restrained. Paul doesn't say how precisely he was being restrained. He just says that Someone or something was restraining him. Some say Paul was referring to an angel. Others say he was referring to government. After all, Paul does say that the government has been ordained by God to restrain evil. He says that in Romans 13. So be careful what you wish for, all you anti government protesters. The government may be all that is standing between you and the man of lawlessness. Just putting that out there. Regardless, the point is that Paul and John agree. There is some principle of lawlessness, some spirit of Antichrist operating all throughout the last days that will intensify and personify just prior to the return of Christ. This spirit or principle of Antichrist is effective against everyone who does not love the truth. So think of it as a wind that blows across the road that leads to eternal life and is so strong that it deceives And dispatches all those whom it touches, except those who have the seed of God in them. That is exactly what John says in 1 John 4 4. He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John says, You have something stronger in you than the spirit of Antichrist. You have an otherworldly gravity which allows you to hold the road while everyone around you is being blown away. It's being blown away by this demonic spirit of opposition. That's the spirit that is here and that is getting stronger, that is coming into the world. It's already blowing and it's going to get stronger and stronger and more focused the closer we get to the day of the Lord. Second thing we can say, based on these readings, is that the spirit of Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son. You can see that in 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, remember, John has already identified the people who departed from his churches in an act of formal schism as the Antichrists. It may even be that John coined this particular phrase, the Antichrist, because of the specific error of these people. These people disputed and denied the apostolic doctrine of Christ. Because of their Greco-Roman background, they just could not buy into this idea that Jesus of Nazareth could somehow be identified with the God of the universe. That did not compute for them. So they came up with a variety of other more reasonable options, reasonable to them. Maybe Jesus wasn't really human, they said. Maybe he was just an appearance of God to man. That was the, the heresy uh, known as docetism. Or maybe the Christ spirit descended on Jesus, the man, for a season of his life. Maybe Jesus of Nazareth was possessed, as it were, by the Christ spirit, just like Judas was possessed by the devil near the end of his life. Maybe that's what happened. That, that of course, was the error associated with Serinthus. But surely we cannot believe that Jesus was truly God and truly man. Surely that could never have happened. That's what they were saying. They were denying that Jesus was the Christ. Now, we get confused here because we tend to think that Christ was just Jesus' last name. My name is Paul Carter. I'd like you to meet my friend, Jesus Christ. But the concept, for particularly for first century hearers, the concept of Christ was way bigger than that for John's original here. Stephen Smalley explains the meaning of that title, Christ. He says, For John and the heretics, it refers to a divine being and appears to be synonymous, as in this verse, with Son of God. Closed quote. And, of course, that's exactly what John wants his people to believe about Jesus. He says that at the end of his gospel. It's the climax. He says, John 20, verses 30 to 31 Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, I want you to believe that, brothers and sisters, that all my work, all my labor, all my writing is toward the end of your believing that, and I have been opposed in that at every step along the way by the Spirit of Antichrist. He wants you to believe something less than that about Jesus or something different. He does not want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The third thing we can say with confidence here is that the Spirit of Antichrist denies that Jesus is God incarnate. You see that in 1 John 4, 2-3. By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the Holy Spirit wants you to believe and confess that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and the spirit of Antichrist is doing everything in his power to keep that belief out of your heart. The Pillar New Testament commentary is helpful here. It says, the aim of the Antichrist is to deceive people by denying the truth about Jesus Christ, and in particular, within the context of 1 John, by denying the true humanity of Christ that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, closed quote. So basically, John is pushing back both ways here on the influence of the Antichrist. He was saying in 1 John 2 that we will believe, we do believe that Jesus is truly God. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, here in chapter 4, he's pushing back in the other direction. He's saying, we will believe, we do believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus is truly God, and Jesus is truly man. That is the gospel. If you take hold of those twin truths, you will have touched upon the greatest power In all the universe, if you understand who Jesus was and what Jesus did, and if you take hold of that, if you make him your Lord and your Savior, if you see in him humanity assumed and humanity redeemed and humanity restored by the only begotten Son of God, then you will be saved and the devil will have lost all his slaves. That's what Jesus said in John 6 verse forty. He said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, closed quote. So that is what's at stake, brothers and sisters, and the Antichrist knows that very well. All right, so that is the Apostle John in his epistles on the matter of Antichrist. Now, if you want to really drill down on this topic, you'd want to go back and revisit the episodes that we did on Daniel, specifically chapters 7, 8, and 9. In those chapters, we meet a character, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who serves as a sort of pattern or illustration in advance of this character that John refers to as Antichrist. Tremper Longman III, in his commentary on Daniel, says that Antiochus becomes an apt symbol for the one Christians know as the Antichrist. Quote. So go back and read those chapters and listen to those episodes to supplement what John is saying here in his epistles. And if you want to dig down even further, you can also go back and find the episodes that we did on Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, referring to the beast that rises out of the sea. In those chapters, John envisions a coming together of a demonic anti-Christian spirit with the power of the state so as to formally and fatally oppose the people of God. Those would be the main passages you'd want to consult in developing a whole Bible approach to this issue of Antichrist, along with what we read from the Apostle Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So zooming out then to the widest possible magnification, we could say that really the concept of Antichrist runs from one end of the Bible to the other. The story really begins in Genesis 3. Way back in the Garden of Eden, we heard God say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Close quote. So God said that there would be all-out perpetual warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So there is an antichrist spirit predicted in the very first book of the Bible, and we can see that spirit manifesting in story after story after story all throughout the biblical timeline. And occasionally in that timeline, we see that spirit personifying. We see that in Pharaoh. We see that in Haman. We see that in antiochus the fourth epiphanies we see that in king herod trying to murder the baby jesus and we see that in nero whom john outlived but who quite transparently helped to fill out john's conception of antichrist in the book of revelation so we see a perpetual spirit we see plural manifestations and we see occasional personification when the spirit of the Antichrist fuses with the power of the state as wielded by a particular individual who seeks actively to oppress, persecute, and in some cases, annihilate the people of God. That is the pattern we see throughout the length and breadth of the Bible, and that is a pattern we expect to continue and eventually climax just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. So how should we respond? Let me very quickly suggest three ways. First of all, let's respond with watchfulness. Absolutely, let's know the pattern, and let's read the signs. But to be clear, you have to do that in the right order, meaning you have to actually know the biblical pattern in order to usefully watch the signs. Far too many evangelicals have learned their eschatology from paperback novels written in the 1990s instead of learning it from careful and prayerful study of the scriptures. So that has to change. Let's read what the Bible says and keep our eyes open. Secondly, let's respond with resilience. We are not the first generation to deal with opposition. We are not the first people to have to lean into a headwind. So let's not lose faith, let's not feel sorry for ourselves, and let's not wring our hands wondering whether God is still in charge of the world. The Antichrist is a dog on a chain. What he means for harm in the providence of God only ends up serving to prune and purify the church, and to strengthen and confirm the faith of real believers. Thanks be to God. And then thirdly, let's respond with sanctified defiance. The spirit of Antichrist wants us to abandon the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. So I say let's push back on that. Let's know, love, sing, preach, and share the gospel in this generation, like never before. Let's hit the Antichrist where it hurts the most. Let's do what he hates, and let's spread the message to which he is deathly opposed. That's Christian defiance. That's how we push back against this present darkness. That's how we overcome the one who has gone out into the world. And we'll do it, not because we're better or smarter or stronger than those who fall away. We'll do it. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also download our app, the End of the Word app, wherever you find your apps. And you can connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. It'd be great to see you there. I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the